Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a clinical psychologist discusses that feeling of deep anxiety or dread known as angst. Some level of angst is normal. I mean, all of us are a little anxious at some points. All of us separate ourselves from society at some point. It's when it gets to this level where you can no longer function in the way that you normally can function, when it becomes no longer typical. A man who survived COVID-19 after a lengthy hospital stay shares his story. I mean, I was nervous in one way, but I also, I pretty much told the doctor I wasn't going anywhere. But it was definitely a fight, that's for sure. And researchers tell about an unusual case of pneumonia that may be a new vaping hazard. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a man who survived COVID-19 after almost a month in the hospital. Then, a pair of researchers tell about a new vaping hazard. But first, a clinical psychologist discusses what you can do about angst. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. I'm talking about that feeling of deep anxiety or dread known as angst with Dr. Jennifer Rapke. She's a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Rapke. Hi, Amber. Thanks for having me. Now, I think most of us are used to hearing the term angst um, with regard to adolescents or teens. Can you describe your definition of angst? Sure. I mean, I think just popularly, I would think of that as well, that it is much more a teenage type term, you know, of this wrestling and this challenge that um, adolescents are normally going through, you know, that almost all of us go through as through that period of time in our lives. Um, so that would be the same thing I would think of as well. Um, you know, and I think the question we're talking about today and that we saw in the, the screening that we did last week was when does that become not normal teenage development and something that we're concerned about? So so the screening, what do you what do you mean about the screening? So Upstate Galasano Children's Hospital hosted a screening last week of a movie called Angst um, that is a documentary that was created by um, Celia Anderson. And it's actually teenagers talking themselves about what angst is and what that feels like for them and how they knew when it became something that they needed help with and was beyond their normal experience. It was a really great documentary that's available and out there and Upstate hosted the screening. And then we also did a panel talking about what people's questions were, what people were wrestling with and struggling with and what, you know, next steps they could take. So. So is, is angst normal? Some level of angst is normal. Um, I believe actually all mental health concerns, we all have some level of on a continuum. All of us are a little depressed at some point. All of us are a little anxious at some point. Um, you know, all of us separate ourselves from society at some point. It's when it gets to this level where you can no longer function in the way that you normally can function and you no longer can have relationships in the way that you can norm- you know, normally have relationships. You can't go to school, you can't go to work when it becomes no longer typical and we need to address it in some way. So what would you say, how would you describe sort of the signs and symptoms of angst? Is it is it just sort of a, a feeling of anxiety or dread? Sure. So most people, the best example they can think of is public speaking. It's very normal when we go into a situation, when we go into a, a on-air conversation that we feel a little bit of jitters, we feel a little bit of nervousness, standing up in front of people, having everyone watch you, you might be sweating a little bit, you might be um, shaking a little bit. It's when that becomes so debilitating that then you can't stand up in front of the people or you can't even go to school that day because you're so nervous and worried and upset and distressed that then it becomes more than just that typical experience of feeling the jitters or feeling nervous about something new or different. 
So there's a lot of people that don't have any problem doing public speaking. So is it normal to not have angst if you're a teenager, you know, coming of age? Sure. I think it is, you know, and what I would say is, um, some people experience it differently. So one of the things we talked about last week and, you know, I figured we would talk about today is in teenagers, anxiety or angst can look different for everybody. So some people might have that normal sort of typically expected experience that I just mentioned of nervousness, jittery, sweaty, you know, um, worried. That's sort of the, the textbook definition, the typical thing we think of when we talk about angst or anxiety. But a lot of people experience their anxiety differently. They experience it in what looks more like depression. They retreat from people. They they stop their relationships. They look down. They look sad. Um, some people express angst or anxiety with anger, um, with lashing out at others, with pushing people away in an aggressive way because they can't deal with that feeling that they have inside. So angst can look a little bit different for everybody. And I think there's a level of normal appropriate angst, and then there's a level where it becomes beyond that and requires some kind of help or intervention. Now, we've used the term anxiety as well. Is anxiety the same thing as angst? Um, Some people I think would say it's the same. You know, angst is more of a I don't want to say that like a popular cultural term um, where anxiety is the term that typically professionally we use to describe what I think most people mean by angst. Um, I think angst also feels a little existential, you know, or, or that you're wrestling with something emotionally that you're wrestling with your identity or, or your conceptualization of things um, where anxiety is more of a clinical type term that indicates a specific set of symptoms that oh, we're looking at. Okay. So, and then there's specific beyond, um, similarly with depression, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I have anxiety. Oh, I have depression. Then there's actual diagnoses where it reaches a level of giving a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder or a specific phobia or something like that. So there's all different levels. I think of it along a continuum, you know, where there's a little bit, there's enough to call it something. And then there's enough where it meets a diagnosis, which is very high level. Do you think if one struggles with angst in the teen years, does that predict anxiety problems as an adult? That's a really hard question because there's a lot of variables and a lot of things that factor in there. Um, Like I said, I think some level of angst or anxiety in teen years is normal and appropriate, but when it reaches a higher level, then Yes, if someone is already having significant impact on their life as a teenager, sometimes that can indicate that that's going to be something they struggle with for a long time. Um, Other people sort of have that normative angst or anxiety. It gets a little out of control because maybe a lot of crazy things or intense life experiences happened at once. You know, um, for kids, some of the kids we've been seeing right now, you know, there's the normal developmental process they're going through and then there's COVID and then there's a lot of societal things happening and when you lump all that together at once that can sort of amp things up we we wouldn't necessarily expect that they might have problems later in life it could just be that what I call the perfect storm is happening to them right now and as those things start to calm down they may not continue to struggle with that long term so it's a very complicated answer (laughs) to that question. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jennifer Rapke. She's a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate, and we are discussing angst. And you mentioned um, the pandemic and sort of the civil unrest, I guess. Um, Is this uh, adding to people's level of anxiety or angst? Not just teens, but just everybody. Absolutely. It's it's a question I've been asked a lot lately. Um, for some of the kids that we see, it's been a little bit relieving because they've been out of school and they've been out of some intense stressors, you know, that they normally would have to deal with. But the longer this has been going on, it has definitely become, you know, a factor. And for some kids, the social isolation in particular has been extremely disruptive and extremely triggering. Um, teenagers are meant to be 
very, very social creatures. You know, anyone who has been through adolescence or has an adolescent in their life knows that they rely on their peers typically more than they rely on the adults in their life. Um, and without that immediate support or having it be distant, you know, through virtual means is incredibly disruptive and incredibly challenging for them. So we are definitely seeing the isolation and the the pandemic and the social unrest, as you described it, you know, have a, an effect on them. I'd like to ask you about quarantine fatigue among teens and young adults in particular, um, where they're tired of isolating and social distancing, and they're just over this. What advice do you have? Sure, that's a really tough one. I've certainly seen it in my own community that teenagers seem to be out and about more and not quite following things as much. I think quarantine fatigue is something that we as adults are feeling, um, and certainly that trickles down to our kids and our adolescents. One of the biggest things I would say is that we have to role model for them that although it's hard and although we're sick of it and although we're feeling over it, that if we aren't going to do it, they certainly are not going to do it either. They're looking at us and following our lead. The other thing is making sure we're giving them access to what it is they're looking for by being fatigued. So is it the social isolation that's the biggest piece that they're missing? And what are other ways that you can offer that to them or give them access to it? to still do it safely. So are they just ignoring quarantine rules because they so badly need to have social contact um, and they're feeling down or anxious or something as a result of not having it? So can we address those needs with them, you know, partner together and offer them that same need in a safe and healthy way? So what would be helpful for someone who's struggling with this? Well, there's probably some things that are broad to everyone. And then for each individual person, it's thinking about for them what the need is and what is the factor that's most influencing them at this time, which could change over time. Um, for some people, the lack of routine is the major thing that's throwing them off and disrupting their functioning. So getting some sense of a routine back is really, really important, whether that's just kind of giving themselves their own schedule or getting themselves involved in a new activity that they can do safely and in a healthy way. Um, for some people, having that social connection is the most important piece and is the piece that's triggering them the most. So we look at what are safe and healthy ways that you can have social interaction that comply with you know, our community's guidelines. Um, you know, what activities can you go to safely? Are there family members that are lower risk that you can start to have some contact with? Um, you know, looking at those options. Um, for other people, there's other unique things going on. Just, you know, their family is now financially in a lot of struggle, you know, or the living situation has changed or, you know, those are other things that as a family have to be looked at and figured out um, and talked about of how is this affecting everybody and how can we get through it together? Are there things that parents can do if they have teens that are sort of, they're, they're watching struggle with this? Are there things parents can do or are there things that parents are doing they should not be doing um, that could end up, you know, helping the person through this time? Sure. I think the hardest part of, being a parent of an adolescent, and I'm thinking ahead years of myself of what I'm going to struggle with the most, is when they push you away, it's very hard to stay in it. You know, it's like being in a boxing match, you know, and the person just keeps knocking you back into the corner, knocking you back into the corner, and you have to know that you're doing the right thing by continuing to come out of the corner and continuing to be a part of their life. Um, because adolescents are often very dismissive of parents and can be extremely not nice at times to parents. Um, and that's really hard to keep coming back when someone is being that hard on you. Um, I think the most important thing that we hear as adolescence starts to close and they move into that early adulthood is even though I was really, really nasty and hateful to my parents, I knew that they were there for me. They kept they kept in it. They supported me. They kept making sure I was okay. They made me do things I didn't want to do like chores and, you know, doing family night and having dinner night. And at the time I hated it, but I'm so glad now looking back that I did it. So I think keeping those routines that are important as a family, whether they act like they want to or not, you know, end up being a good thing in the end. Um, I think as a parent, you know, it's, it's funny because as a professional, we're so focused on criteria and meeting diagnoses and things like that. There is a bit of intuition to 
those relationships. When you as a parent feel that gut feeling that something is not right, something doesn't feel right, my child feels different, my family feels different, something's up, trust that instinct and really seek them out and say, look, are you sure you're doing okay? Like, don't just give me the straight answer, you know, like, yep, I'm fine. You know, like, really, are you okay? You know, is something going on? And you don't have to talk to me about it, but can I take you to Aunt Sally's house and you'll talk to her? Or can I get you to call this hotline and you can talk to them? You know, I think the hard part is relinquishing who it is that the, the adolescent talks to, but making sure you connect them with someone. It might not be you, but it might be someone that you trust or a professional. Um, so I think those check-ins are really important when you feel something is off. That's a, a good first step. So that's sort of a parent's sixth sense, you're saying, yeah. that just sort of knowing that something's not right. Are there uh, concrete signs and symptoms that really a therapist is needed? Sure. So we really look for a change in functioning is one of the big things. So were they previously getting up, going out with friends, watching TV, you know, um, eating meals regularly, and now the last two weeks they don't care about eating anymore. I have to force them to have dinner. They're not even watching TV anymore. You know, they're hiding out in their room much more than they used to. Any change in their behavior over not just one or two days, but over several days at a time, you're starting to notice a pattern of things that are different. The other thing we're looking for is, is specific symptoms. You know, have they been aggressive when people try to ask them or help them? Have they been very nervous and jittery and worried. Um, has their sleep pattern changed? You know, did they go from sleeping normally at night to now all of a sudden they're sleeping throughout the day and they're up all night long? Um, again, eating behavior, that's a big one. That's usually an indicator too. So um, any awareness of substances, which I know is sometimes hard for parents to have knowledge of, but that can be an indicator because a lot of kids we will hear say that they started using to try to dull some of those feelings of angst or anxiety or depression. Um, so they'll start smoking pot or they'll start drinking alcohol or things like that because it does help them feel a little better is another big adolescent thing that can be a sign that something's not right. Um, which is hard because it's not unusual for adolescents to start experimenting with, you know, trying drinking or trying substances, but that can also be a sign that they're trying to make themselves feel better in a way. Do you see adolescents who actively come forward and say, I'd like to, you know, get some therapy? Or is that just a taboo thing with, with teens? Yes, yeah, so the research actually shows, and most kids will report that they felt they tried to communicate to an adult in their life that something was wrong. And the person either dismissed it and said, no, you're fine. Stop worrying about it. Everything's going to be fine. That kind of a thing. Or, and even the documentary talked about that too, that kids felt like they tried to communicate to someone in their life. It may not necessarily be a parent, um, but sometimes a parent, sometimes a family member or a friend. And that person, kind of dismissed it or said, well, let's just, let's just go out to eat or let's just go for a walk and I'm sure you'll feel better after we do that. So the person was well-meaning and trying to do something to help, but didn't totally hear or ask questions to understand the experience better. So I would definitely encourage people to be more sensitive that if a teenager actually seeks you out and says, mom, dad, grandma, I don't really feel right, or I don't feel like myself, or I'm feeling really down, to not just sort of say, well, it's just a tough day, you know, let's move on to the next thing to say, well, tell me more about it. Tell me about what it is that you're feeling or what's going on. And then you can hear how hopefully they'll be willing to explain to you how much more serious or how much more there is to it. Wow. Thank you to Dr. Jennifer Rapke for opening our eyes to angst. She's a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's talk show and podcast, HealthLink on Air. He battled COVID-19 in Upstate University Hospital. Meet Travis Duffy next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. He spent nearly a month at Upstate University Hospital, much of that time on a ventilator, 
battling COVID-19 and worrying that he would not survive. But Travis Duffy did survive, and he's got quite a story to tell. Travis Duffy is a farmer from Canastota, and I'm talking with him by phone. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Mr. Duffy. Hello, how are you? Well, first of all, what type of farming do you do? Um, we actually raise heifers for a large farm down in Cassville. And we also do, we have a crop division. Um, so we also have a crop operation where we go around and do custom work for other farms. Well, I know you're back to work. Yeah, yeah I am back to work. I came back. Uh, I was probably back to work two and a half, three weeks after I got home. So. Wow. Well, I'm interested to hear. Take us back. Uh, when did you learn that you were sick with COVID-19? How did you know that you had this virus? Um, the beginning of April, I don't remember the exact date. It was, I don't know, the 5th or 6th or something. Um, I just kept waking up in the middle of the night, had a hard time breathing and had a fever. And I'd ended up going to the hospital, I think a day later. And they, uh, checked me out, sent me back home. This was in Oneida. And the next night, same thing. I was, I felt decent during the day and then still wasn't a hundred percent. I mean, I was having a hard time, just kind of, you know, kind of felt sick. I just little hesitant breathing, you know, throughout the day. And then at nighttime, when you really try to sleep, it was really bad. And I ended up, um, Ended up going to getting a test done for COVID, and that tested positive. And I went to Upstate, I believe, on the April 10th, April 10th or 11th, and uh, yeah. So I I got I took an ambulance ride there. Wow! And so luckily, I went that day. So your you mainly your main symptom was difficulty breathing. Yeah, and then. The, the second night there, my fever was up to like 104, and I, I had called a local nurse that lives right down the road from me, and I told her what was going on, and she, she, actually, she actually told me, the, you're going in the ambulance. She's like, you're not waiting, so uh, she made me go, and yeah, so it was, yeah, basically hard, you know, tough breathing. It was really tough. I I was really struggling and with the uh, breathing and just, you know, either the freezing or sweating, just the fever got so bad, I I decided to, you know, end up going in. Had you heard about coronavirus before you started having these symptoms? I had. Um, we did have a meeting here at the farm with all the employees and, um, you know, a lot of times for lunch, all the guys, you know, we might run down to the store and grab a sub or something. So we kind of put, we had a meeting here and I kind of told everybody to start bringing their lunches. I didn't want them to go into town. So we were taking some precautions here at the farm too. Just we're kind of, we're out of the, you know, we're out in the country. So we kind of really weren't too worried about it, but I guess, and really none of us know where it even came from. We're still, we don't know if somebody just showed up here and brought it or one of the other. I mean, we, we did have two other workers that tested positive after I tested because we had everybody tested after. Um, so we don't know if, like, one of them guys had it before me or if I ended up getting it and giving it to them. We, we just don't know. And, but, but we were all really not going anywhere, so it was just kind of weird. And really at our meeting – with everything we deal with the farm, you know, we were all kind of like, ah, we're, we're not really too worried about it. We thought maybe we'd be immune to it, but I know it hit me pretty hard. The other two guys, not so much. They had, you know, they felt kind of sick for a couple of days and then really they, they didn't really have the symptoms like I did. I don't know why I got hit so hard the way I, why I did, but I guess it treats everybody differently. Well, have you ever been hospitalized before? Um, I mean, just little stuff like growing up, you know, nothing, nothing in the past. I mean, just, 
I mean, I've had asthma growing up, um, nothing terrible. I mean, literally, I mean, I, I might use an inhaler a couple times a year, you know, it's nothing, it's not like a real bad asthma. So I don't know. Other than that, I mean, fairly healthy other than that. I mean, I don't, you know, don't smoke, don't drink and don't really do anything, you know, just, I don't know. I don't know really why it hit me the way it did. What can you tell us about the ride to the uh, hospital that night? What do you remember about it? Um, I remember everything. I mean, we, you know, obviously I got in the ambulance and I was, I mean, I was scared, you know, but at the same time, like I knew I was going to give it everything I got. So I was, I was kind of, I did get on the phone and make some uh, plans for uh, financial plans there for my daughter who's eight, her name's Aubrey, and then soon to be born Connor there. I did, you know, try to set some things up over the phone just with some really close friends and family there, just let them know what I wanted done and this and that. So, I mean, I was nervous in one way, but I also, I mean, I also, you know, I told the doctor, I, I pretty much told the doctor I wasn't going anywhere, but it was, uh, it was definitely a fight. That's for sure. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Travis Duffy, who survived COVID-19 and is home after a lengthy stay at Upstate University Hospital. Now, tell us, um, your son was born while you were hospitalized. Is that right? Yeah, he was born on the 4th of May. Yep, and I didn't get out till the 7th. So, of course, I I wasn't there. Um, I think Kylie went in. I think she ended up going to the hospital on the fourth or on, or on the first, and then she didn't get out, didn't get released till I don't know the fifth or something, fifth or sixth. I were I don't remember a whole lot of that. I do remember the nurses putting a big sign up, you know, just saying congratulations to your boy Connor and stuff like that. I don't remember, you know, I don't remember like a whole lot of that. I mean, little stuff like text messages I'll go back through where Kylie was texting me and stuff and like so I can kind of remember certain things but I was still I was still pretty much out of it for a little while during that time that she actually had the baby did I presume everything went well with the delivery and and the baby's okay and Kylie's okay now yeah yep everything went really well great yep just it just kind of you know, no, no visitors even for, for her. So it kind of, you know, you're in these hospitals all by yourself. So it's kind of just like with me, I mean, nobody can come in to see me. So it makes for definitely long, long days for, for me and the family for sure. What can you tell us about the treatment that you received at the hospital? I know you were on the ventilator for a while. Yeah, I, um, I was on the ventilator a total of 21 days. Um, I think around, I think around like the 14 day mark on the ventilator, I woke up. I remember waking up. Um, I actually, there was nurses sitting outside my window. I, all those rooms are glass windows and all that doors and they're, they're watching you pretty much 24 hours a day. And, um, I remember waking up and the nurse was knocking on the door and like she was pointing to us. My family sent in and friends and they sent in a bunch of pictures and she was pointing to all the pictures. And so I gave her the thumbs up. I mean, obviously I can't, I couldn't talk, but so I, I was, I do remember waking up. Um, but as far as the nurses at Upstate and how everything worked, I mean, by far the best place and treatment I've ever had. I mean, they were just phenomenal to work with and um, couldn't, I couldn't have been in better care, honestly. They were, they were great. That's great to hear. Now, did I understand correctly that you received convalescent plasma from someone who survived COVID-19 ahead of you? Yes, I 
Um, I haven't been in touch with the lady yet. She's from Rochester. I've, I've been going to. I've just, I don't know, it's been, I've had, you know, so many different interviews and, been, and you know, with the paper, just a lot of stuff. So I was trying to hold off for a little while and get back on my feet with the farm. And um, But, yeah, there was a lady from Rochester I got plasma donation from, and that's what really, I guess, changed me around um so yeah i i definitely i definitely got to reach out and i definitely would like to talk to her and thank her for everything she did and i guess that's what really turned me around i guess they gave me three three doses of it or however they do that yeah well if i understand it correctly it's um you know a person who has survived this their body makes antibodies and so if they are able to give those to someone else who's infected that will spur their body. The hope is that will spur their body to make antibodies as well. So tell me about, uh, you had, after you were, uh, off the ventilator and, and recovering, you had some rehabilitation ahead of you too, right? Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't have been on, uh, well, like I said, 20, one day's on the ventilator at I don't remember what day it was the 15th or 16th day I I broke the front mouthpiece of the ventilator I, I was like coughing real hard and um those I mean those ventilators don't get me wrong they're a great thing but they're they're it's just dry air all the time so it makes you super thirsty I mean and your mouth is dry and, and they're they're constantly you know trying to wet your mouth down and put stuff on your lips and but it's just it's just super dry so I broke the mouthpiece and I coughed real hard and it got caught in my throat and so I one of the days I ripped the whole ventilator completely out and so that set me back like another four or five days on the ventilator where I, I might have been off it a little bit sooner oh. but um and the doctor had told me originally um normally they can't get the ventilator back in after you pull it out because everything's swelled up and but they got the ventilator back in so they didn't have to do a a trach in my throat so um but yeah after that after that i mean i originally got off the ventilator at 21 days and then i kind of figured you know i was telling the doctor i can't wait to get out and walk around and you know he's like oh you're you're gonna have to do some rehab first and I was just like, well, I, I'll be able to walk, right? And he's like, uh, I don't think so. So I did try to get out of bed, and I, yeah, I, I had to relearn to walk again. I had to relearn to pretty much do everything all over again. So do you have any lingering deficits, or are you back like 100%? Um, when I first got home, you know, I, I was – having a really hard time walking couldn't get up the stairs my brother was pretty pretty much carrying me up the stairs so I could get up to bed and it took me I was having um home therapy come in and it I I mean really took me like three or four good days of therapy and then I was walking up the stairs and now I feel really good it took me a while to get my arm strength back that's been that's been my my only problem I'm I would say I'm about 85% right now I mean my arms are really feeling really good now I still have a little bit more to go but other than that I mean I feel really good I mean everything my chest feels good my breathing's been fine um they do say being on the ventilator I believe I mean correct me if I'm wrong but oxygen to your brain it, it doesn't get as much so it could have effects on your memory and all that i i don't feel i have any of that i as of right now i mean i i pretty much remember everything except obviously being in the coma but i really i don't think i've lost anything and i mean i came right back to where i was and i knew i mean pretty much everything that i left off with so well, that's very good. I'm really glad that you're doing better. I want to thank Tra- Travis Duffy from Canastota, who is back to farming after surviving COVID-19. We appreciate you sharing your story. I'm Amber Smith from Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Coming up next on HealthLink on Air, a new vaping hazard. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A research team from Upstate Medical University has published a paper about another potential life-threatening complication from vaping. And here to talk about it are fourth-year medical students Michelle Gorbanasov and Kia MacArthur. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thank you very much. Hi. Thank you for having us. <laughs> now, your work brings out another potential life-threatening complication from vaping, but let's remind listeners of what they may have already heard about. We've, we've had several guests on HealthLink on Air who've mm-hmm. talked about vaping-associated lung injury, mm-hmm. um, where people have died or mm-hmm. suffered severe damage from mm-hmm. electronic cigarettes. So um, let's start with, can I have you describe sort of, are, are vaping and e-cigarettes the same? Um, they can be, but I think the big thing is that there's kind of all different types of Mm e-cigarettes and vapes, not just kind of what you can put into them, but how they look as well. And how they work. And how they work. Yes. Okay. So I think usually there's actually more terms than just e-cigarettes and vaping that people use, uh, to describe them. Um, but I wouldn't say they're... You can, I think, interchangeably use e-cigarettes and vaping, or people usually do that colloquially. So what's harmful about them? I think the main thing is we really don't know what's going into these electronic cigarettes or vaping devices. There's very little regulation as to what people or companies are putting in these products. And there's also a larger, I would say, compared to cigarettes, like black market buying people, buying devices off the street, buying, sharing with their friends, not knowing what mm-hmm. their friends are using. Yep. Um, so there's just very little regulation. It's very mm-hmm. hard to kind of pinpoint what is going into these products. Mm-hmm. And you can put not just nicotine into them. People use uh, kind of THC and cannabis that they put into it, mm-hmm. which again is very different state by state in terms of regulation and where mm-hmm. you get it from. So that kind of adds to the question of what really is in it and how will it affect your health in the long term? Mm-hmm. And so this vaping-associated lung injury that I mentioned, mm-hmm. we're still trying to figure out really what causes that, right? Uh, I mean, we mm-hmm. know it has something to do with vaping, but mm-hmm. we don't know precisely what it is, right? right? right. So um, that's sort of as background, because your team had a paper published in the journal Pediatrics, mm-hmm. um, and it's different than the right. vaping stuff we've mm-hmm. read about. So can you tell us about it? Sure. So, Kia? Yeah. So, our case started. We had a 15 year old female and she came into the upstate emergency department from an outside hospital. Came with very, what we call like non specific symptoms cough, fever, not feeling well, some abdominal pain, some vomiting, some diarrhea for a few weeks prior to her coming in. But the thing, when she came in, her parents said that she was panting. She just looks like she couldn't breathe. And it was kind of like, what's going on here? Kind of like very nonspecific. This is a viral infection. Is it influenza? Is it something nonspecific? She was told at home that at her primary care doctor, she might've had like food poisoning or gastroenteritis. So it was kind of like very severe presentation, kind of vague symptoms, really don't really know what's going on. Um, she did have some blood work done at an outside hospital that grew this bacteria that we wrote our case report about the Fusobacterium neck necroforum, I believe is how (laughs) we pronounce it. Um, But upon getting a social history from the patient, we found that she began began vaping about nine months prior um, and pretty consistent use from what we were able to gather from her multiple times Mm -hmm. a day. Um, She denies any use of very marijuana products with the vape, strictly nicotine. And we did end up sending the uh, vaping device to the health department and they were able to confirm that it was strictly nicotine in the vape. But there were different flavors of the vaping uh, nicotine products that she was using. And I think that's also one of the things in the um, like research is, is that these additional flavors that could be causing the um, complications as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this Fusobacterium yeah. necroform <laughs> yeah. that you mentioned, did, did that ha- give you any clues as that yeah. this was like more than the usual? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the interesting part is there's a, there are studies out there that a lot of these patients that come in they actually present with very severe, like, um, kind of airway injury. And you don't actually have a bacteria mm-hmm. 
that is affecting them. So that's that's mm-hmm. kind of what makes our study a little bit different is that we did have a bacteria, but it's not really a bacteria you should be getting pneumonia from in a 15 year old. So that's this is what makes it different. Um, and the interesting part, and I think Kia can mm-hmm. speak more to it as well, is that this bacteria is associated with um, a disease called Lemierre's disease, mm-hmm. where you end up actually having a thrombus in your vein, in your neck. There's been studies that have associated that. And a thrombus so, is a clot? Yes, yeah. it's a clot okay. within your neck. Um, and the interesting thing about our patient is she didn't have it. Well, thankfully, she yes. didn't have it. Um, so that kind of made us question, why is this the type of pneumonia she has? Because mm-hmm. um, usually the cases of the Lumeris disease, uh, the patients usually have very severe throat symptoms prior mm-hmm. to their diagnosis. And she just had very nonspecific kind of viral URI symptoms or upper respiratory infection. And she yeah. had them for about two days with no real sick contacts that she Mm -hmm. could tell us from her school or her friends or at home that were having Mm -hmm. similar symptoms to her. So um, So none of her vague symptoms, sort of putting them all together, none of it added up to much. But getting Mm -hmm. this blood work back Mm -hmm. also didn't really add up. It it presented Mm -hmm. you with more questions about what was going on, right? Especially Mm -hmm. since the blood work that she had done was done at an outside hospital. Mm -hmm. So when she first came into upstate and was admitted to the pediatric ICU, we didn't have the results for, I would say, the first one or two days of Mm -hmm. her being admitted. So this kind of came in as it was evolving as we were working on the case. And because of kind of this was also happening at a time when vaping really had a spike. Oh, yeah. It was happening last year during the summer of 2019. Um, So we, even when Mm -hmm. we would come in and talk to the patient, that was kind of on our high suspicion Mm. of, is she vaping? Is this something vaping associated? Um, And we we did have that suspicion, but then when we kind of got Mm -hmm. those results, we were posed with more questions of, well, how is this happening? Mm -hmm. And could we explain all of this because of the vape? Sounds like the yeah. TV yeah. show House. Oh, yeah. Of history, yes. kind of. yeah. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with fourth-year medical students Michelle Gorbanisov and Kia MacArthur about a paper they had published in the journal Pediatrics. Now, the paper, uh, the, head, the headline or the mm-hmm. title of it says severe anaerobic necrotizing pneumonia, mm-hmm. which is a mouthful. So yes. what, what, is all, what do all of those words mean? Sure. I mean, pneumonia is a lung infection, right? right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So anaerobic just means that the bacteria causing the infection doesn't require air to essentially survive. So the necrotizing aspect of it, if you put it all together, is our patient had a very severe lung infection that was essentially causing an abscess in her lung. And this bacteria was just kind of just mm-hmm. sitting there growing and just creating a huge mess essentially yep. in, her, in her right lung, I believe. And the interesting thing about abscesses is they're actually kind of hard to um, treat mm-hmm. because they kind of get a little bit closed off in the lung. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. So it kind of go, gets closed off, and the necrotizing part of it is the tissue starts to die mm-hmm. within. And with her, it wasn't just associated with this one part of her lung. She actually had it in multiple parts mm-hmm. of her lung. Well, if her lung tissue starts dying, it's mm-hmm. not going to grow back, is it? So it it depends. That's a little bit of a complicated question yeah, to answer. No. I think I think on one part is she is very young, mm-hmm. otherwise um, healthy, otherwise yeah. healthy, fifteen um, year old female. Um, so when the tissue does start to die, there is a chance that there is scarring. Mm-hmm. So the way that it um, it won't regenerate, it's gonna get fibrotic potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't really know is all of it dying, it's some of it dying. That's, I don't think you can tell that from like a CT scan, but there is mm-hmm. a chance that um, down the line that she will have parts of her lungs that are fibrotic. Yeah. So and lasting permanent damage. Yes, yes, potentially. Wow. So what ended up happening with this young woman? Mm-hmm. 
So she ended up being, um, I believe, in the hospital for a total of 10 days, um, about one week in the pediatric ICU. And when we went to go see her during that first week, she had a lot of trouble breathing. Luckily, she didn't need any form of an intubation, which is awesome, just some supplemental oxygen. And once she went out of the ICU, she went to the reg uh, regular inpatient uh, unit here. And then she subsequently went home, I believe, after about 10 days. And then, But she needed to complete about three weeks of IV antibiotics at home, so mm -hmm. one month total of antibiotics. So she went home what we call pick line. So it's an IV that gets put in usually in the arm and then it's, uh, it goes all the way up into mm -hmm. the heart. So she had that in for about three weeks and she got very what we call intense broad spectrum antibiotics, mm -hmm. kind of what the ID docs call big guns to merely see how much they can penetrate up this abscess. Like Michelle right. mentioned, the abscess is very walled off. It kind of creates its own little barrier to treatment. So she needed... So it makes it yeah. harder to kind of get to the bacteria yeah. that's actually inside that abscess. So she went home with that pick line, and um, we were traveling for um, interviews and whatnot, right. but she did follow up with the infectious disease clinic mm -hmm. about one month after this whole thing, and they said that she was still having some trouble with breathing, not really able to climb up a flight of wow. stairs without mm -hmm. any shortness of breath. And But luckily, she is no longer vaping. Right. Um, she had not smoking any cigarettes of any kind, um, so she's kind of on the mend, and we'll see what happens mm -hmm. So is the, the theory that she inhaled this bacteria mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. her vaping device? Um, so that is a theory mm -hmm. that we have that potentially it was within the vape that she could have had the bacteria. The, but, the liquid that uh, goes in. Yes, either the liquid, because the liquid's also heated, and so you don't know, I don't know if we can say where it was, um, mm -hmm. but that is a theory. The other thing is um, we have a lot of bacteria that kind of live in our mouth and our throat, mm -hmm. and the other theory we proposed was that actually the vape is causing a lot of irritation, chronic irritation coming in your mouth, in your throat, mm -hmm. potentially all the way into your lungs. So you are breaking down that barrier that exists there, mm -hmm. and therefore you can start getting other bacteria that you wouldn't normally get going all the way down to your lungs. And because you have this chronic irritation, it makes it harder for your body to kind of mend it and to help so you get this kind of sudden drop in like immunity and potentially mm -hmm. could have affected why she got this severe so necrotizing quickly. pneumonia mm -hmm. so quickly. So how does this relate to the vaping associated lung injury that we've heard about? Is it, I mean, could some of those cases be the same thing as this was? Um, so about, I think we'd have to separate it from um, patients that have known bacterial infections. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. So like some of them, some of these cases, you don't have any bacteria associated with it. And it's actually stuff in the vape. For example, mm -hmm. the flavoring, they've also found that vitamin E acetate mm -hmm. has known to irritate your alveoli and therefore predisposes you to this lung injury. So I think those cases are a little bit different. And I don't think you can place it mm -hmm. in the same group. But Potentially, could you be inhaling bacteria from the vape? Could the vape be irritating your whole oropharynx and your lungs and therefore exposing you to bacteria you already have? Potentially. So from this study, mm -hmm. um, do you draw any conclusions in terms of what can we learn? What can we take from this study that could help other people? Mm -hmm. I would say that this case kind of adds to the spectrum of what we're seeing in regards to lung injury and complications of vaping. I think um, we can't say it's necessarily the same or very similar to what we've seen in the past, but it definitely just adds to the narrative of we're seeing these uh, particularly young people in the country vaping, and these are a potential complication that's mm -hmm. very severe. Um, we've had... Um, our case, fortunately, our patient was able to go home. Um, she's doing well as far as we know, but there have been deaths associated mm -hmm. with vaping um, with the previous cases. So I think it just adds to the narrative, the story, and just tells people like, hey, we, we shouldn't be vaping. We need to have more regulation on products that you're selling to people mm -hmm. and just kind of giving an additional thing that could happen. The other thing is this is a 15-year-old teenager. And a lot, if you look at what the CDC has talked about and the data they have gotten since like February of mm -hmm. 2020, a lot more young adults mm -hmm. are affected by this than older populations mm -hmm. and especially teenagers. So I think this adds, this study along with many others adds to the fact that we really need regulation at the level of the people that are most vulnerable 
which is mm-hmm. teenagers and young adults who are vaping, who are using e-cigarettes and may not be always aware or right. think that they're the ones that are going to get this. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you to Upstate fourth-year medical students Michelle Gorbanasov and Kia MacArthur. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Our doctors would probably be surprised how our brains take a word or two from their diagnosis and create a very specific prognosis for ourselves. Here is Upstate New York poet Teresa Wyatt, Heads or Tails. Please, not in millimeters, I say. All right, the doctor adjusts. It's about the size of a quarter, and it's butting up against your brainstem. Then, somehow, a cool gray light surrounds the room, streaming pictures from my younger life, washing dishes and babysitting, saving my allowance, finding treasures from under the couch, the cost of a comb, rolling change and paper wrappers, city parking meters, silly childhood bets, flipping quarters upward into sparkly summer air, landing harmless everywhere. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.